Psalm 30 is about doxology, praising God. Follow with me while I read Psalm 30. You don't have any blanks to fill in. This is easy. You may jot an additional note or two if you like, but I'm going to read Psalm 30. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. I think for the most part it's pretty close to the English Standard Version, though I know for sure there is one word at the conclusion where there is a different translation. Point that out. But follow with me. I'm going to read Psalm 30. You can see the superscription, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. Well, let me just go through a couple of matters here. And I, Justin has uh, kind of got me a little bit uh, intimidated here with this because I'm about to say something about this background. I know what he was saying. But uh, I, I'll just point out several things there, there in your notes. Uh, but this is indeed a Thanksgiving psalm. Uh, it's been also called a psalm of declarative praise. And it's closely connected with lament. So many lament psalms are praise psalms. You know, the psalms have been looked at closely by students of the word and have the 150 psalms have been categorized into different kinds of psalms. And a lament psalm um, theme is, you find it in almost like about 60 or 70 psalms. It's where the psalmist is some great sorrow and trouble and some grief and an expression of lament to God. Lord, I need your help out of this, through this. And the connection between that and a praise psalm or a thanksgiving psalm is that so very often, then the boat of grief, of lament, is lifted by praise. We'll see that here in this psalm. And I will alert you to something as I read it. You'll notice that there is a definite, um, uh, what is called in technical language in the psalms, an inclusio, we would say an envelope or bookends. You see the line in verse 1, I will extol thee. O Lord, and then you look over to verse 12, and he says that my soul may sing praise to thee and that and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to thee forever. So it's not hard to see how this, uh, this, this psalm is a, if you will, a package of thought. And so here is going to be a thanksgiving for some deliverance that David experienced. Now, we don't know exactly what it is. Some think that he's just sort of sweeping over his life because, believe me, he uh, he had a lot of close calls. And uh, when you read his life, it's like going to those Saturday afternoon cowboy matinees in 1958 where the hero just every week, it's just something that you wait till the next week to see if he's going to get out of what he got into the week before. And so David's life just goes on like that in many, many ways. And then what David does here, though, is that this is not just some sort of cloistered uh, reminiscence of his experience of, of, of deliverance from what really is near death. He almost died. But he really goes and reaches out and says, 
would you all join with me in giving thanks to God? And so this song was penned, and it's brought to the temple, and it was sung through the Levitical singers, the sons of Korah, and it was one of the hymns introduced into Israel's hymnody. And that's the general flavor of it. And now, we do have a question here with regard to the house. What house is he speaking of? Some stretch on it is that maybe his house? Because David's time, the tabernacle wasn't truly developed as it came to be, and certainly not the temple. Some think maybe the tent tabernacle, the predecessor of the tabernacle, uh, tent in preparation for the temple. But Probably the tabernacle is what he's referring to. And another feature of this psalm, and I'm going to point this out to you as we walk our way through it, is the number of contrast in this psalm. It's just loaded with them. You think in 12 verses, there could, how could there be so many? Just uh, for a sampler, he, he's lifted up and then he's going down. God's help and Enemies gloated. Serious sickness, renewed health. Threat of the grave, life. God's anger, God's favor. The psalmist, sin, repentance. Personal grief, joy. Physical suffering, praise and thankfulness to God. And there are others that in these 12 verses, it's just packed with them. I think it reminds us of something that's it's very human. And for a believer, it takes on a special dimension that life is, is filled with a lot of involved complexities and varieties and how we are emotionally, we're, we can move back and forth within sometimes nanoseconds and we sweep. It's like the waves coming in and going out and coming in and going out. And all of these are these kinds of experiences, not necessarily contradictory to one another. But what is prominent here, though, is that with all of the difficulties that are described, you know, the grave, the near death, the sadness, and so on, going down, enemies against him, that this is more than uh, than than responded to by God and lifting him up toward the Lord. And if you know anything about the way David thought and the way he worked through things, that God was his refuge in whatever he's dealing with, he just goes to God, goes to God. All right, now with that, let's let's go into, and I'll read the psalm and try to limit the comments, and let's read it through and then walk through it and, and follow its thought. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up. Um, For those uh, Hebrew students here tonight, you would find this uh, a particular interest in that word occurs in Exodus in chapter 2 in verse 16, describing of bringing a bucket up out of a well. Anybody ever remember that? There's some of us who can remember those days when that's where you got water, bringing it up out of a well. And that's the, that's the picture being lifted up. And has not let my enemies rejoice over me. Oh, Lord, my God. Uh, don't let those, that personal pronoun, my, 
slip through your fingers is that says a lot about the way the psalmist David is thinking, relating, working through his difficulties. And I cried to thee for help, and thou didst heal me. And, O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from Sheol. This is the place of death, the grave. And he apparently was about to die from some serious illness. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones. Those uh, students of Hebrew, you know, one of the things now about these glasses, I've got this incredible magnification here. I actually can see all my notes that I wrote 30 years ago in my Bible, and so that can slow us down. So I see something, I say, whoa, I should go to that. (laughs) So something to be said for partial blindness, I guess. And uh, that uh, this word, godly ones, hasi, that's related to the word chesed, Ah, Hesed, I see some of you mouthing the word, you know it. This word covenant love, covenant loyalty, loyal love. That's the godly one. Relationship with God and his loyal love comes to us, comes to us. He loves us. And with that said, he gives thanks to his holy name. For his anger is for a moment, but for a moment. But favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, there, there is an obvious real turning at this point. I've tried to reflect that in the outline. It turns a corner here. Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, uh, the word, the, the, the word is, the Hebrew word is the word shalah. It means to be at ease, like, hey, things are going pretty good. Things are going pretty good. It's like that guy I saw in that 57 Chevrolet convertible yesterday, down going down 54 in the sunshine with his uh, lady friend in the car and the wind just blowing across her hair and holding her hat, and the sun was warm in that beautiful aqua-colored 57 Chevrolet. I don't know. I thought of at ease. That's a good moment. But I want to say in all seriousness that what David is describing here is that he had put himself in unbeknownst to himself at first in harm's way. That's the way prosperity is. When things are going well, it can be very dangerous. I never, I will never be moved. O Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Now he sees his dependence on God as like that being settled in a mountain. Strength, immovable. Thou didst hide thy face, I was dismayed. To thee, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise thee? Will it declare thy faithfulness? Now, that if you are really paying attention, you gotta have a little, you gotta have a question here. Wait a minute. You see this in some other places in the Psalms and the Old Testament. Wait a minute. Don't you know that in my Father's house are many mansions? If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, 
I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and so on. Isn't that what kind of resonates? If you're, if you're anywhere along, along in the Christian life and life after death, and then you see the psalmist, and he's, I don't want to die. What would we say to him? David, you need to see a counselor. I'll come back to that. That's not, it must be understood in, in its context. Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be thou my helper. The Hebrew word here could be my power, my strength. He sees the Lord is that to him. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Oh, my, my, my. And David you know, David was just such an, ex- he could be so exuberant. He could just be over the top. And what a man. Um, you can see why David was quite the ladies' man. I mean, he was, he was this, he was athletic. He was, he was the warrior poet. He seems to have had a lot of gifts. And you remember the occasion when he goes out before the, the, uh, the, uh, Ark, thank you. From the ark, and he's dancing, and he's just twirling around, and and uh, he's just an embarrassment to everyone, but to or at least to his wife, and not an embarrassment to himself. He's just so he's just so overflowing with delight and thanksgiving in God. Okay, now this is not a free pass here, Eric, for dancing in the aisles on Sunday. Okay. <laughs> Do you you dance in the aisles in Senegal? Do they? Really? Just while you're preaching? No, not while you're preaching. Just during the meeting. Just move around. Yeah, usually it's the moms who get young. Yeah, okay. Okay, okay. I want to know. I was going to ask you if you got involved, but I'm not going to ask you that. See, whirling. Don't put those pictures in the press. Okay. Okay, back to his dancing. Um, He says, Thou hast loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That the sackcloth associated with grief, it would be just wearing the clothes that are associated with personal misery and agony. And I guess you add a little bit of discomfort to the epidermis with that kind of clothing, like wearing a burlap sack. But now he, but he's saying metaphorically here, you are clothing me with that which is comfortable and enjoyable, and I'm through and through and delight in you. For my soul may sing praise to thee. Now there is uh, in the English Standard Version it says, doesn't it? My glory. That's what it says. It's the Hebrew word kavod, and he says, my glory. Um, that's the whole of his being just rises up in exuberance and delight and thanks to God. And not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to thee forever. Now, let's walk through it along these three lines. There, uh, I, I've chosen to see these three movements. I think they're obvious here. These first, the first movement is praise for physical healing. A rescue has happened. He's been delivered from enemies. He has been desperate, desperate in his, his circumstances have been awful. 
And he's been rescued from impending death. So here he's expressing this thanksgiving. And may I pause here and just remind us of something? You know, we can read this and we can, we could certainly vicariously, or we, we could think, well, sure, sure, he should have done that. Well, what about us? I don't know. Do you have this problem? I have the problem of getting so caught up in this scientific age in secondary, secondary matters, secondary issues that come up in healing. You go to the doctor. You, you get the finest medical treatment in the world. You get, uh, you have doctors, we have hospitals, we have medicine. Sometimes we can get the right combination of things and the medicine and we, hey, I'm good again. Oh, and they can make the right diagnosis. They can run the right test and just all along the way. And we forget, we confuse secondary causes with the first cause. You see, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I mean, do you even thank him for ibuprofen? That's an amazing thing. I mean, it can give you some relief. Thank you, Lord, for Tylenol. Thank you, Lord. Oh, antibiotics. Yes, oh, I had that infection. And at another time, in another place, it could have killed me. Let's thank God for that gift of whatever. So what should we do when we're sick? I put some questions through here. And have you been brought out at a time of some sickness or near death? I think a lot of us could say that. And that just what we know about, not counting what we don't know about. Something, some fever, some undiagnosed condition that we had. And thanking God for it. That Keep that in mind. So he's expressing God's thanks. Thanks to God for his healing. And he wants everybody to come in and join with him. That's, I would think that people who go through times of great difficulty, the first thing they would want to do within some physical extremity, some sickness, is I got, I got to get back and get with God's people and I got to sing praise to God. That would seem to be what would be the kind of, a, if I say, a spiritual automatic which ought to occur. And... What David does here in this psalm, in these first five verses, is that you can see something with regard to God's anger and the relief from his anger. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'll suggest something to you, and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit more um, in a minute. But that David's conviction is that God's favor outweighs his disfavor for his people. Yes, God is displeased with sin, and but He God doesn't bear grudges. And you know how some of us tend to think, this is human, uh, you don't need to raise your hand on this one, but we tend to think that because of some past sin, and then we get into some difficult conditions, situations, sickness, a loss, a disappointment, we think, Oh, there it is again. The Lord's after me. The Lord's reminding me. 
the Lord's punishing me. Uh, have we fallen into that trap? Uh, this isn't to say that there aren't consequences from past behaviors and such, but let me suggest something that David may be referring to here. He may be, I can't be dogmatic on this, loophole in his commentary on the Psalms, he really expands this. Uh, others don't agree with him on this. But he says that this is, prop, David is could very well be re- referencing here his uh, the census that he had taken. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21. And it's a fascinating study in the sovereignty of God because in one case, in one situation, it says the devil incited him and another says the Lord incited him and, and David is held responsible. Well, that's a conversation for another time. But the fact is, is that David, probably near the end of his reign as king, he commissioned Joab to go out and to conduct a census. He wanted to find out how many fighting men were available in Israel. And Joab, who was not always the best spiritual counselor, but Joab had enough, had enough sense to think, David, you don't need to be doing this. Because he understood that the law that the king was not to revel in. Remember that in Deuteronomy? You don't multiply, one thing, you don't multiply wives. You don't multiply, uh, gold and you don't multiply horses and chariots. And the king in Israel, in the theocracy, was God's surrogate. And he was to live in a state of dependence in a very earthy, visible way. And to go out and to count heads to see how many fighting men you had as a king. Can you see what may very well have been indulged there? To bring yourself up. I mean, it's, I say may very well have been. It was because he was lifted up in pride. It was not motivated by Trust in God. And to find out how many fighting men you've got, and David then could can begin to compare himself with the nations around him. Oh, we are we're the we're the strongest kid on the block. And Joab though went out and did it, and they found it was a, a million and a hundred thousand fighting men were available at the ready. Came back and told they took nine months, scripture is very specific on this, nine months and 20 days to make the circuit up through Israel, come back and tell David. And then David is suddenly smitten with guilt. Oh, what have I done? How stupid or sinful of me. And then God says, David, bend over and grab your ankles. What do you want? Multiple choice. Would you like to be turned over for seven years to famine? Hmm. Would you like to be turned over for three months, three months of your enemies hammering on you and defeating you on the battlefield? David thought, not one, not A, not B. What's three? A plague. Sickness that will come in upon Israel. David had presence of mind enough to say, Lord, I would rather be put in your hands on this than in the hands of men. Because you're a merciful God. So even, even in his chastisement, he was, he, he saw 
God with some clarity here and trusted him to do the right thing. And so a plague, some sickness, some flu bug, whatever it was, began to sweep through Israel and apparently was moving down through the nation from north to south. And up to 70,000 died in just a few hours. And then suddenly it stopped at Jerusalem. I got to stop the story and just say it has some really interesting implications for a sermon, namely that it stopped at the the threshing floor of Aruna on the hill of Moriah, the place that David eventually he bought, and that became the place of the sacrifice, and that became the place where eventually the temple was built and the altar of sacrifice. That's quite a oh, what a story in itself. Let's get back to the main road. So. Maybe David is referring to that moment in his life. And David perhaps was ill among, along with the people. We don't know. But so David then, though, he is reveling here in God's deliverance. You can see his language as how he enumerates his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. And that's really true. It is really true that that he's saying that God will come and chastise us and when his anger breaks out, when it is chastisement, not all sickness that we experience is God's anger, but when he refers to it, there will be relief in the morning, joy comes in the morning. That means after it's over, after whatever it is that you're being spanked for and it comes in the morning. And, you know, there's nothing quite like going through a night when you are really, really bad off. Headache, sick, nausea, fever. You ever had one of those nights? Oh, I remember a night in the Philippines. We went to see John and, uh, and Rachel. I was near the end of our trip there and something hit me with a vengeance. I had whatever you can have. I felt like I had it for the bad and I had this raging fever and then on top of all things, in the home where we were staying, they had one of these notorious brownouts, and it just means the power goes off. So you couldn't have any fans. Bless her heart, Beth kept getting wash rags. and I, I didn't think that night would ever end, and all I could think about was getting home. <laughs> and, and David said, but, oh, relief comes in the morning. And I, this is the optimistic, a biblically informed optimism. Biblically informed optimism that it will be, you know, when God's people go through difficult times, whether it's chastisement or just through the circumstances of life when we go through what we do, that the believer's short time, the times of pain and suffering are, are really short. Now, for the believer, that means that for eternity, we'll talk about them maybe and smile. And as one, one saint said in some book I read somewhere, is that when we look back upon the sweep of these sorrows and sufferings that we've experienced in life, that when we're in glory, they will be as simply made like one night in a bad motel. <laughs> Bring it on, Lord, that time. I did read this story. That I thought this put a really a sweetness to this whole um, idea here that he's unfolding that the story is told of Harry Ironside, great Bible teacher of a couple, some generations back. 
And he tells the story about his father, Harry Ironside's father, who suffered much near the end of his life. And he was spoken to about this. He was a strong believer. And he said, I'm suffering more than I thought it was possible for anyone to suffer and still live. That was his answer to Isaiah Thiel. (laughs) How can you live and feel this bad? But he added, one night of his blessed face will make up for it all. Lord, give me the grace to think and respond that way. I have not at times. (laughs) Lord, help me. So there is that contrast. Now, look at the next movement, verses 6 through 10. Here is this public confession of pride and repentance. So now we get something pulled back. The curtains pulled back. Oh, you were sick, were you, David? You almost died. Now David says, I got a confession to make. I got spanked. And the Lord came after me. My foolish heart. And what way did David sin against the Lord? Well, if, and I say if, if he's referring back to that prideful time when he took the census, I don't know. But whatever it is, it was a time when he had a false sense of security. He felt at ease. And when everything is going well, I don't feel guilty if everything's going well, but just remember, there's a danger and it is self-confidence. And David here then breaks through, works through all this, and he says he's confessing that his self-confidence and his pride got him into trouble, and the Lord had to spank him. Now, do I need to um, expand the idea? I do think I do, because... Self-confidence in us can find its root, and we may not be able to, we don't have the power to go out and get a census taken or whatever it was with David. I don't know. But, you know, there are things that self-confidence can really begin to take over. Natural gifts. You could be one of those people who just got a cluster of natural gifts. Oh, they can do this, they can do this, they can do this. Whoa, be careful can be beauty. Some are favored with appearance that strikes the attention of others more than others. It's just part of this world. can be brains. can be brawn. You know, athletic ability. can be wealth. can be education. can be just physical energy. You can be just one of those... It's like that commercial I hear. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a... Oh, what is wrong? I always feel so good. (laughs) Be careful. Be careful. And churches can get into this condition. Churches can begin to get self-confident and cocky. And things, circumstances can begin to flow in the direction of a church. Maybe a local economy gets good. Maybe some people are attracted for whatever reasons and give well or that whatever you get a wealth of talent and and energy and things of that nature. And church can begin to say, wow, we're we have really got a smooth running organization here. Be careful. 
And nations can get this way, oh my, where we can think that we're secure based upon our military strength. Oh, no, Israel was a theocracy, different set of circumstances. We don't stay purposely in a state of weakness. We stay strong. That's the best road to peace. But so we learn from it. Now, there is something I need to touch on briefly before we move to the final, uh, the wrap-up of this psalm. And that is this this uh, matter in verses uh, 12 and 13. No, excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong psalm. In verses, uh, in verses 8 and 9 and 10. What's with this? I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I mean, if, if I came to visit you in the hospital... And it's not looking good. And I come in and you're in a fetal position. Said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I'm thinking, what do I go back and tell the assembly? Is this the way we Christians with a robust confidence in God should be facing death? So you look at David. Is he cringing? Keep several things in mind. I've listed them there for you. They're just suggestive. It's worthy of a more expanded talk. But... What You have to understand that an Old Testament believer like David, that he saw life, all of life, as any, any Jew would have in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. Life, circumstances were focused on the land, the land. It was all about the land. I mean, it doesn't take much awareness to see that when you read through the Mosaic Law, it's all about the land, the way you relate to the land. And so... The, what God put in place with the tabernacle and then the temple and all of the, the sensual, I mean that in the best sense, the sensual experience of the smoke and the songs and the, the celebration and all of this and to praise God in community and great gatherings in the assembly as you hear voices and trumpets rise and praising God and joy dancing before the Lord. And they said, I don't want to not be able to do that anymore. We said, well, you get to heaven. He didn't know all about heaven the way we would. He knew very much about what God had put in place for them as a people. And he simply said, I don't sure. I'm not sure I want to leave this opportunity to praise God among the living on this earth. And so he knew that God ruled over life after death. I mean, they weren't theological twits. Old Testament saints, they knew that God was there on the other side of the grave. But just try to appreciate and understand that. Now let's conclude. Verses 11 and 12 where this thing really goes up. Back, see, you get these turns, don't you? Praises God for deliverance. And then he says, I got a confession to make. And he confesses it before the whole assembly. I mean, put it in him. Do you do that? Do I do that? I'm going to write a hymn and tell everybody I was just full of myself. And here's the reason. It's embarrassing. And here's the hymn we're going to sing. See, second verse, there I am. <laughs> See that picture in the corner there? That's me, stupid me. And David said, I, I, was, I was prideful, self-confident, at ease. And now he comes back. And here's what he says. You've turned. That was turned. For me, my mourning into dancing. So there's celebration. The Lord's been faithful in changing his circumstances. See these further contrasts here? Wailing, dancing, sackcloth, clothed with joy. Dancing before the Lord. 
at the, the sound of the name of God, you sent him whirling and thanking God. I confess I'm not given to that kind of thing. I, you know, I can appreciate what you were saying. Is, the, is it just the ladies that do this, the dancing? They, they, they get it going. Okay. Um, but the, the thing is, is that David was so exuberant. He's saying, in his soul, the dance starts. And if it, it breaks out because he's just so exuberant and thanks to God that his love for God, his, uh, his, 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 his relationship to God is so rich and fervent and I can't help myself. I can't help myself. We don't get things like that presented to us in a Christian context. Uh, I will tell you this, though. This is going from the sublime to the ridiculous. If you want to see a magnificent dance, watch Singing in the Rain, where Gene Kelly, he is smitten. He's smitten by, was it Debbie Reynolds? And he's smitten. And he comes away from telling her goodnight. And he's just beside himself. He's crazy. It's pouring down rain. And he's just all over the place. That's one of the best dance routines I, I know about. And it's just, by the way, it's on tonight, in case you're wondering. <laughs> okay. But David says, I'm dancing. But it's all about God. And he's just so filled up with God that that's the way it comes through. But, you know, there is a little, there is a little stinger here if you see it in verse 12. And not be silent. Mm. We must not be silent with regard to the blessings of God. God delights in praise. And he uses this praise. He does. He does. He uses this praise of him and thankfulness to him, I think, to be an, an, a, a powerful attraction to God and his people. Uh, we tend to think, well, they just think we're crazy. I, I'm not saying we got to run up down the aisles dancing. We'll blame that on Eric. If that, that's, I, I, but I do mean this, that certainly, by the way, I noticed that this morning, when you get through that message, well, I think we were hitting on all cylinders on those, those last songs. Did did you pick up on that? Uh, was I... Uh, I mean, we seemed like we were really coming up to another level in our singing right at the end of the service in those songs, and really ringing the bells. And I, I, I I'm going to. I hope I'm safe in saying this: that you know, when you you get enthralled with with God and His goodness and the person of Christ, and you want to love Him more, and you thank Him for who He is, you see who He is, and all His loveliness and splendor and His beauty. And you know, next week in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and. Oh, 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 and it's just going to take you up and you're going to spiral up, not spiral down. And so I think that when people come into an assembly who may be unbelievers and they see that God's people are genuinely, not superficially, it's not contrived. You don't have to get everybody worked up. I've been to meetings where I have had suspicions about that, where people mistake physical gyrations and excitement for genuine worship. But I'm just saying that we're into it. We're whatever your personality, wh- however that you're wired, 
You, but the most, the fundamental thing is coming out of you. We worship in spirit and in truth. And it comes up. And you know, when you're an assembly like this, now this was in Israel, and people were, the Israel was designed as a people and as a nation to, to, to uh, attract people. It was a centrifugal effect in the Old Testament because Israel was a place to have been a magnet to bring the nations in to hear about God. To with us, it's centrifugal. If we go out, bring them in. So not be silent, not be silent. Uh, here is something that I found in, um, I love Boyce's treatment of the Psalms. He's uh, James Boyce, and he, he referencing uh, Luke 6 and 45, out of the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Boyce says, so if we are not speaking God's praise, it is because our hearts are not full of him. Instead, they are filled with things of this world, things that will perish with the world and pass away. What a sad exchange. The things of this world for the glories of the eternal God. 